Okay, we are recording. <laughs> I don't mm. actually know. How do you say? Mm. Yeah, no, I wouldn't know I how to say know. that. <clears throat> okay. In French, I definitely don't know how to say it. I feel like I should know how to say it in French, and I don't. <gasps> Welcome to Three Wheeling, a podcast about making friends in your 30s and everything that we've been enjoying recently from books to podcasts to movies and TV. I'm Laurel Henning, a Sydney-based journalist, and with me is my glorious co-host, Sasha Kelly. How are you, Sasha? I'm well, thanks, Laurel. I'm all the better for spending my Thursday night with you. Bit of magic there behind the scenes we record on a Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just in case anyone ever wanted to know ah okay. we are we are recording as news hits that beyonce is going to be releasing her new album on the 29th of july i Aren't didn't so know excited? that i should have saved that for our listeners you should have we'll re- i'm so we'll excited. return to it we'll return to that later teaser we're going to be talking about beyonce oh i knew that she'd wiped her social media feeds of all imagery which is usually i mean taylor swift did it Something's brewing. Something's brewing. Mm. Um, but that's very exciting. Ooh. Okay. I did see a photo of Blue Ivy the other day and she's very grown up. She's no longer a five-year-old, which is what happens when <laughs> with, the, with the passage of time. But, you know, she does look <laughs> 15 or so. <laughs> On that bombshell, have you been making friends? I have. I was in Sydney, as you know. Because you were at this event that I organized. I threw a birthday party for all my Sydney, for all my Sydney best friends, for myself. It sounded like I was doing just this mass birthday party the way I introduced that. I threw a birthday party for myself and invited all my friends in Sydney who weren't my work colleagues. My work colleagues had a separate um, event for me. So I was really very thoroughly spoiled. The last episode you said, oh, it's your birthday week. And I really did have a birthday week. Uh, But I was a bit concerned. I was a bit anxious that um, I was inviting all these different people who really didn't know each other. And, you know, I knew them really well independently. But you're only ever one person at a party. You can't be everywhere at any one time. So you're leaving all these people to suddenly meet each other for the first time. Um... But it was just the most delightful evening and I had the best time and I sincerely hope that everyone else did because everyone told me they did. But you never know. You, you can never tell. You just don't Mainly know. Mainly because you're not responsible you for everyone else's good time. But that is, exactly. that is true. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I just had the most, yeah, it was just the most delightful time. I felt very, very lucky and very spoiled. And I've endeavoured and we've talked about this off mic, but I've endeavored to throw and host more parties as a result, because I think the anxiety comes from not thinking that I've done a good job. But like everything in life, you get better with practice. But now that lockdowns and restrictions, we're starting to, to use the immortal phrase, live with COVID using air quotes. Um, I think that it's a really nice way to welcome people back into the world of the living really special evening in fact so special that it is my friend making thing for this week as well because I had the best time talking to your friends at that party Sasha and indeed with Rosie we even exchanged numbers 
Rosie has signed up to come to book club next week. So two of my friend making experiences, your birthday party and consistently book club are going to come together in beautiful harmony. I hope. I hope she has a great time. Next time that we record, you'll know whether she has a good time. Hopefully I'll know. (laughs) Yeah, and we've exchanged messages and she's gonna come along and I am thrilled, especially because this has come at a time where I'm not gonna lie this week's been a little little ropey, a little ropey for me. I feel like I'm going through a period where a few previously single friends are no longer single. It's, it's a different uh, dynamic. And it's causing me to suddenly think I need to make more single friends. But also, which is always the case, as a single lady in your <laughs> 30s, you always need more single friends. But it just... That's also very difficult when perhaps you are feeling a bit low because you can't instantly make friends with whom you're going to rely on in those moments. So, yeah, it's been a bit of a week, but um, I'm really looking forward to to doing that. And just talking about your birthday party now is just like, yeah, really put a smile on my face. And that's just so nice. But also the other thing I was going to say, sorry, was that I think bringing people together at a party where no one knows each other is also really reflective of the fact that now... I think it's quite unusual at our age to have a set group of friends unless you've never lived overseas or never moved out of the city that you were born in. I think that's really unusual. And so what you end up with is I have a great bunch of friends. Do they all know each other? No. And so occasionally you bring them together. But a lot of the time, and I especially I think am quite a one-on-one quality time sort of person. I just really want to focus normally on one person. As a result, I get very overwhelmed at parties. (laughs) Um, But I think those days of sort of going to (laughs) your university society or whatever like that have have gone, which is why things like book club, etc. are magical and why we try every couple of Mm. weeks to bring you suggestions of how to meet people because we realise that it's not that easy. Anyway, that aside... What have you been? I think we're going to build to what we've been watching because then if we're doing lots of spoilers, people can just switch off if they don't want spoilers. So little teaser there. I feel like people can guess at this point already what it's probably going to be. But what have you been listening to? Listening to. I'm glad you started with that because I'm actually going to do a bumper listening this week. Go for it. And give you a free pass for your reading because, <laughs> Laurel, look, I will read again. I will. <laughs> I will. I just haven't yet. And it will happen. But it's just not happening at the moment. And I've decided that's okay. It is okay. I just want to second that. <laughs> I'll also bring you to why I know that it will happen again. Because the first thing I listened to this week, so I've got really into this podcast called The Imperfects. It's run by, um, well, I think the primary host is Hugh Van Kulenberg, um, who runs an organization called The Resilience Project. Now, I shamefully do not know enough information about it, but I understand that it's about, you know, um, resilience. Um, but he does a lot <laughs> Also, when you said, you know, I was going to be like, no, I don't. <laughs> I've got no idea what this is. Um, I think he does a lot of like uh, talks with corporate groups or schools and okay. and things okay. on, on his life story. 
which I shamefully do not know enough about because I've only just started getting into the podcast. But he also hosts it with his brother, Josh Van Kulenberg. And uh, another name... I mean, it's a great surname. Let's say it more than once. Oh, no, let's not. Because I've, I've, I've just managed to get through it those two times and I'm going, oh, not again. Um, and the third host is Ryan Shelton, who is... Uh, to Australian listeners might be famous as a very good friend of Hamish Blake from Hamish and Andy and was part of that writing and producing team on that show and a lot of their television shows. And the episodes that I've gone and listened to are the ones with Johan Hari, who is in another meta three-wheeling moment, wrote the article that I recommended a couple of months ago, I think now, which is about the art of attention and the fact that we're all losing our attention spans. Mm -hmm. And I listened to these two episodes and the first episode is from a couple of years ago and that one's about the need for connectivity and society and our role in society and community. Um, and it's about an hour and a half episode. And then the second one is about his more recent book, which is the one on um, phones and digital devices and how they're destroying our ability to concentrate. It's a very, very intense uh, podcast. I wouldn't like necessarily recommend it if you're looking for a pick me up, but not in a, but I'm also not saying that in the sense to like scare you off or make you think, oh, that's not for me. I just, I mean it more in the sense that it's very, they're very vulnerable and in a really beautiful and rare way. And they share very personal things about themselves and they really think about what these questions mean and use themselves as examples. And so I think it, rather than saying, oh, it's intense because you know, you're not going to cry on public transport or, or feel really distraught. But I did find myself thinking, I really want to concentrate on this. Like, I really want to give my full mm. attention to what is being said right now. I don't want to be flippantly passing it by. And it's called The Imperfects because uh, the premise is that everyone is imperfect and all our lives we're striving for perfection, but really we have to be honest that we are imperfect and we will make mistakes. Yeah. And anyway, it gave me just a lot of thought. And um, the most recent episode, like the one that I think, as he talked about um, a lot of the conversation around social media or phones and devices is this, it's this idea that we should be able to go without, but he's like, our modern day life isn't actually set up for us to live without our phones. And at the same time, we're all being basically sold as data or as products to these advertising companies. So he said it's the equivalent of someone pouring itching powder on your head all day. And then the cure being told to you is like, well, you, maybe you should meditate more because if you meditate, maybe you won't hear, like, feel the itching. But he's saying mm. you're getting itching powder poured on your head and then they're saying, oh, no, that's that's just you who's itchy. You just need to meditate. And I found that really interesting because he said that the start of this, sorry, I'm going, I'm rabbiting on here, but he started the book because he went away and decided to buy an older phone and leave his oh, yeah. phone at home. He Nokia 3210 it. Yeah. Okay. And he said all of a sudden his concentration back, went back to when he was 18 and he was – walking going on walks without anything or runs without anything and really kind of allowing himself to be alone with his thoughts 
And then he said, but then he went back to regular day life and he never went back to the same addiction that he was, but he said he was pretty much back at 80% within a couple of weeks. So he Mm. went this idea that you can kind of cure yourself of devices is false. And rather we should be looking, I mean, for me, it has a lot of parallels with the diet industry where it's like, really the only kind of long-term change is one where you learn to live with it. So I'm just interested. So how is there a way of being both aware that you rely on your phone for your modern life and also having a healthier relationship to it or with it? Did he postulate that? Yeah, so some of his ideas were, well, some of the things he does, he he goes for a walk every morning without a phone. And he said, like, try that. He said, try to, when you go for a walk, instead of putting your headphones on and thinking, oh, I'm going to listen to something, he said, try to go for 20 minutes or try to leave the house and take your wallet and leave your phone at home. He said that, you know, try to kind of revert to that older style of living that we used to. And he said, just be without it for a while, but don't, but not for an arranged period of time. And then he also said he's bought this device, this contraption that's like a little box. And he said whenever he has a dinner party or at particular organized points in their family life, like they have agreements that everyone puts the phone in the box. <laughs> yeah, Laurel's just fist pumped the air. So I'm so invested in this as an idea, and yeah, this is why people will never come to dinner parties at my house because <laughs> I'm going to be the kind of host that's like phone in the box. Thank you. She's off. Someone else will steal your Jimmy Cheese and your iPhone. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. No. So he said that that's kind of what he started doing is if anyone comes to his house for dinner, then they can put their phone in the box and it's by the door. And um, I mean, the way he said it, it's not like he's throwing massive raves for 300 people and then taking their no, phones off them. But, but he said like, you know, for dinner parties. Yeah. And I've got to say, like, I would definitely be happy with that. I find the only reason you should have your phone is if you preface the conversation with I have an important text or I'm really sorry I'm supposed to be at work and I've ducked out for coffee or you know when you've done something where your priority actually is supposed to be somewhere else and this time that you're allowing with that person is borrowed so to speak but dinner you know and if you've I do I do have friends who did this specifically when they had their first child I think so it was something that they were actively trying to introduce when they had a baby um and it was never an ex- maybe this sounds really passive aggressive and it didn't feel this way at all and I think it was more for themselves actually than for their guests but they had a box that they had on their sort of shoe rack by the door and so as soon as you arrived you were taking your shoes off and you saw the, sh- the phone box was there by the door and you just chucked your phone in there and yeah it I I thought it was good actually I think it works and obviously it works because you have to be physically detached from your phone and going for walks without your phone or without listening to anything is something that I so like almost never do but I remember consciously choosing to do at one point during lockdown last year (laughs) and I was like some sort of Disney princess being like all the sounds that I can hear that I'm appreciating that I just completely ignore normally Mm. I've started doing it because I go to the gym every afternoon and it's a 15 minute walk there so I've just started saying right I'm going to leave my headphones at home 
for the walk to the gym. And that is not a long period of time, but it's also not a long period of time. So I don't necessarily feel that I'm missing out on anything by, um, and then I have a rule that I don't touch my phone during the gym because I mean, most people don't, but other people do. (gasps) Shame on people who take their phones Mm. into yoga classes. May I say, I had someone in a class recently and their phone went ping and I was just like, (laughs) doing the old like game of Thrones, like ringing the bell. Yes. I was Hannah Waddingham just ringing the bell, being like, get that person out of this class. Where is security? I have lost my zen and it's that person's fault. So that's my listening for this week, Laurel. What are you you listening to? Oh, what have I listened to? I feel like every week I'm coming thinking I'm going to think about one thing and then it changes, like the day before we record... I am going to recommend something that does not need recommending in Australia at all because it's um, the ABC Conversations podcast, which is basically in Australia like recommending Desert Island Discs, I feel. <laughs> it's it's That's fair enough. I thought you were going to talk about, because my second choice is going to be The Hollywood Reporter. I was. I initially had noted that down and maybe we should talk about that because it's probably a bit more topical. Give me the lowdown on conversations and then we can dig into The Hollywood Reporter. Okay, conversations, hugely established ABC podcast and radio program. There is a specific episode that I had listened to recently, which was the reason that I wanted to recommend it, which is the conversation with Maggie Dent, who is, I feel like you would describe her as a sort of educational psychologist or early early education expert or something I'm not sure and previously she sort of specialized in raising boys yes and then she's recently had grandchildren which I kind of kind of objected to in her in the introduction to this to this episode of conversations because it was a bit like when men say I'm a feminist because I have Mm -hmm. daughters and it was as if she'd only just started to think about how to raise strong girls when she had granddaughters in her life. That said, the conversation (laughs) I found so cathartic that I did shed tears. (laughs) You were saying, oh, you're not going to shed tears on public transport listening to your recommendation. I did shed tears. It was incredibly cathartic and much Mm. better as it went on. Early parts of the conversation, I did find more in that frustrating, I'm a feminist because I have daughters tone Mm, but by mm. the end of it she was talking about the idea of when she was a child like she not being the fastest for example when you're running races Mm -hmm. at school and this idea that if you're not the best you should still show up wave at the crowd and try and have a good time and I just thought there was just something about that and also the idea of big emotions not being acceptable, being told to block them, go to your room rather than working out where those feelings are coming from and recognising anger for what anger is rather than, especially for girls who are often told not to be angry, um, that's an emotion that we really shy away from and that's often why when women get angry when they're older, we cry when we're angry because we don't know how to express our anger often in or we often don't express our anger through physical acts. We express our anger through how we've emoted more comfortably and other points in our life, which is to cry. And Mm. I have been in so many awkward situations where people get very unnerved when you start to cry. And I know that the only reason that I'm crying is because I'm extremely angry. 
but I don't know how else to express that. Mm. So that's my but little so listening interesting. recommendation. So I just had a question about um, the show up and have a good time when you're not the fastest. Is that because women, is that because there's something about us that's conditioned to feel that we shouldn't if we're not achieving or like what 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 was that realization born out of I guess is what I'm trying to ask I think that was the idea of we're constantly being pushed to be perfect in lots of areas of our lives and there is a moment in every child's life when you find something that you're not good at and that can be really hard and I think it was more the importance of instilling in a child that not being good at something doesn't mean you can't enjoy it. Mm. And I think that's taught out of us really quickly that, for example, I don't paint or draw very often because I don't think I'm very good at it. When I do do it, I really enjoy it, but I'm, I know I'm no good at it and I'm never going to be, I'm never going to show friends things that I draw or, or anything like that. But I, it's not something I do because I don't think I'm very good at it. Because I realise in saying that, that sounds like saying, put put a smile on, enjoy yourself. And that's not what she was saying. It's more the idea of you don't have to only involve yourself in something because you've got a chance of winning it. You can just show up to enjoy yourself. Go to sports mm. day to mm. wave at the crowd. <laughs> and, and, you know, and no one cares about the three-legged race. And yet I still Aww. am sore about losing mine <laughs> when I was a child because I am the most competitive person in the world. But... Yeah, I think that's that's what that meant. We are running out of time on our listening. I know chat. we are just talking. We are talking for <laughs> absolutely ages Olympics for the Olympics. Today. I was yeah. about to say talking for England because that's what my mum would say, but I feel like that's not what I should say when I'm literally in Australia. Um, but side note: if you haven't mm. listened to the Wards chatter by the Hollywood Reporter, their interview they did with Sarah Jessica Parker, I love that podcast. It's a great podcast. Anyway, I mean, it's very flattering to whoever they're interviewing. It's a very kind, very soft interview. But we have not heard Sarah Jessica Parker's perspective on the ongoing situation, let's call it, with Kim Cattrall and. She, I think it's very choice words. Like it's clearly, I mean, those interviews do not happen by chance. They do not happen without a strict publicity kind of strategy. Uh, and I, I've listened to uh, quite a few Sarah Jessica Parker interviews. Oh, I think I'm um, inside the actor's studio. I've seen her interview of inside the actor's studio, which is very similar where they go from. And then when you were 10, you looked at your mother and said, and they go through every single detail of their life. Um, so I've heard a lot of that early childhood story before. But yes, to your point, I think it was very calculated. I don't want to use the word calculated because that makes it sound manipulative, but I thought it was clearly a very conscious choice to talk about it at that stage. Yeah, and I mean, she's, I completely agree. She's a very controlled person in terms of her public persona. So I feel like she had decided now was the time to say something. And I understand that because she is. she was right in the comment of what has been said has only been from one person. And I also completely understand her desire to want to say something. That said, what I heard, I felt very cynical of, I have to say. Mm, I do too because I think 
saying something like no one I've worked with has ever said a bad thing about me when you're that famous and successful I just feel like that doesn't really I I don't know I don't feel like that's necessarily a testament people don't say bad things about Hugh Jackman Laurel and he's very famous (laughs) (laughs) no I agree I also think both sides can be true because what I took away from it is she had a very clear perspective but whatever or the only thing I've ever heard from Kim Cattrall is that she wanted them to have a friends deal where they all were on equal pay Sarah Jessica Parker clearly or the powers that be clearly felt like she was still the star and that they weren't going to go for equal pay personally as someone who watched Sex and City I think maybe that wasn't completely fair because it did become very much an ensemble piece at the end and I think that Kim Cattrall is within her rights to say she did a lot for that like she really did a lot for that show and I think well the fact that they didn't even kill off the character I think is testament to to the importance of that character to that show and also their desire to have her back (laughs) yeah but I also thought I thought what I found very interesting and a very fair point by Sarah Jessica Parker is she said it was never a cat fight it's not a feud there has never been any fighting words said it's two very distinct points of view yes that has been made by the press into a cat fight and I think that that is completely fair because that is a sexist part of there are two women having a disagreement publicly and not even that publicly really it's just one one person making public comments so far mm. and now we're all like yeah cat fight sort of thing exactly and, and we just we love it we love it the collective it. the collective public love to pile on to a the- cat fight yeah. And it's shameful. Look, quickly, shame, 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 shame. You're, you know, we were supposed to promise laughs tonight and you are just casting a lot of shame on people. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Um, quickly, and I feel terrible, but can you give me your reading very quickly? I will. What you're reading. Maybe this will catch us up because it'll just be me talking about one book. Okay, so I have, gosh, I have dug into the uh, fail-safe comfort reading that I know and love, which is The Cazalet Chronicles by Elizabeth Jane Howard. And this is a set of books, a set of novels published in, I believe, the early 90s. My mum read them Mm -hmm. when she was like my age. (laughs) It is a series of books about uh, the Cazalets, a fictional family, very upper middle class English family set uh, during the build up to and then duration of World War Two. And it's mainly about the people, the family members that get left behind at home when the other family members, the male family members go off to fight. So rather than sort of glorifying the war period, it really digs into I guess especially for a particular echelon of society, the utter boredom and minutiae of that period of history for some people. And just, yeah, the the children's voices are, are brilliant. They're so funny. Um, I've just read a bit where they come across their first dead body, which sounds horrific, but it's so funny the the both the two of them sort of discovering this corpse and being like well I don't know well he wasn't I'm not very sad about it because he wasn't very nice to me (laughs) and all this 
And then I think, well, aren't you meant to pray over a dead body? Well, I've, I've got to go and find help so you can stay and pray. No, I don't think I will stay. I'll pray on the way. <laughs> pray on the way. That's definitely going to be my new catch cry. Pray on the way. But in and amongst dealing with quite a serious period of history, Elizabeth Jane Howard writes in a really humorous, warm cup of tea tone Whilst also dealing with postnatal depression, we deal with sexual assault. Definitely we deal with non-consensual sex. Um, and yet this book, these this series, <laughs> is very comforting. Mm. And it's just total escapism. And I, and I feel like I'm explaining it incredibly poorly. Um, but it's just been a real delight to just completely escape and... Uh, subsume absorb myself into those into those books so yes if when you grew up if you like the idea of sort of the railway children meets Downton Abbey in a book this is for you that's a good sales pitch um the title one more time the Cazalet Chronicles by Elizabeth Jane Howard I believe the first volume is called the light years okay lovely well we teased it at the beginning, oh. but it's time. It's time. Do you want to do the honours or shall I? It is time. <laughs> it is no, time. <laughs> um, Laurel and I compared notes earlier. We don't ever talk about what we're going to talk on mic before we get on mic, but this one I texted Laurel with, with during the week and I said, can we do a cultural blockbuster segment on everything I know about love? Because I... I won't speak for you, Laurel, but I just ate this up and adored it. And I just, I, I started watching it again on Sunday immediately after I, I love- finished it because I was like, it's been over too soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I have not finished it yet. Okay. So let's not spoil the whole series. Okay. Okay. This is going to be, this is quite difficult if we both simply loved it. But we should talk about why we loved it so much. I feel like I am blind to criticism on this a little bit because this book, the book that this is based on, let's talk about that first. So this is based on Dolly Alderton's 2018 memoir, Everything I Know About Love, Mm. which really firmed into the Mm. firmed, is that the right, cemented into the cultural zeitgeist, the conversation about female friendship that I don't think was happening to the degree that it now happens. I mean, the fact that we're talking, we were on a podcast where we talk about making friends in our 30s. This was not something that we were talking about or holding in such high esteem, I don't think, in our age group until we read this book. And it made you realise that not having a long-term romantic relationship, but having long-term friends meant that you were successful at relationships when perhaps you had been led to believe by cultural uh, stereotypes, by cultural milestones, that you were not good at relationships, that maybe relationships just aren't for you because, gosh, you just can't get it right. You just can't pick the right guy, etc., the right partner, etc., etc., etc. Not true. If you have long-term friends, you are a relational person. Um, no, I completely agree. I think what um, I loved about it is that mm. I, I would agree with the points that you've argued there, but what I really took away from it is that previously sex and relationships journalists or columnists were always kind of 
preaching down from on high. You know, they've always kind of either they're a serial dealer like Candace Bushnell was kind of the example in the 90s who was always, mm. I mean, and I'm very much yes, taking this yes, from yes, yes. the genesis of Sex and the City, but yes, um, yes, yes. seemed to be kind of a serial data who was always mm. in long-ish term, short-term relationships, you know, that weird six-month to year mark, but they weren't really lasting beyond that. Um, but that that in itself was a lifestyle choice because she liked dating. But Dolly has like, very openly just admitted to being incredibly unlucky in love and not through want of trying and not through want of being a delightful intelligent um highly accomplished like obviously i'm queen of the dolly i've Um, I've got the fringe to prove it (laughs) (laughs) but i did i just felt that she was aspirational she was aspirational in every other way of her life and yet she also was saying it's really hard it's really hard to find love and it's really special when you get it right and I found that in a sea of books Mm. and magazines and podcasts that have previously kind of said well you must not just be trying hard enough it was really nice to have someone say actually it Mm. is just potluck and you might be trying but by gosh am I trying harder and, I, and I'm trying to alongside with you. I'm not speaking to you from, oh, and the last chapter, reader, I married him. Like, it's not, that's not what she's saying. She's saying very vulnerably, I have these clear desires, which I'm told I'm not meant to say openly anyway to begin with. I'm not meant to say what I actually want because that scares people away. Um, and she has. And then also, as another uh, societally, culturally unacceptable thing, she really wants to be successful in her work. And mm. by God, she's done it. And well, she's certainly done that. Woman hustles. She hustles and it's, yeah. This is not a spoiler. And so I feel like I can say this. One. Yeah, we need to dive into the series because so far yeah. we've just gushed about Dolly. Yeah. Which um, is fine because, I mean, well, she's gushable. This is, I am continuing to gush about Dolly. Okay. But um, I found it very interesting that she is the sole writer on this series. I think... Most other television series that I see these days have uh, show, like staff writers, showrunner. I'm sure she did have um, individual input, but I found it even more admirable that I went, gosh, like, where do you start translating this memoir into something for the screen? And then I went, and she did it on her own. Great. (laughs) Let me just ask you questions because I think then that way I'll avoid talking about the end of the book. Let's do it. Favorite character? Oh. Uh, Instinct says Maggie. I think Nell's actually great. Mm, So you think all of them have been done particularly well? Actually, I think they're all great. Yeah, because as I said, Nell, I was like, don't do Amara dirty. You love her. And then I was like, but. Birdie's very (laughs) sweet. Um, Did it. What was the most surprising thing about the series to date? that has caught your attention? Her, I think the intentionality that Dolly has obviously put into this in how they've cast these friends and also then as a result of casting women of colour in the in and amongst this friendship group, there is a conversation that happens between the characters of Maggie and Amara, which is really important and really 
really good. And I think that that surprised me because it's in no way part of the Mm. book really Mm. at all. And I think that was a really good writing choice. And how that's how that's sorry how that's built to across a couple of episodes. There's one interaction between Maggie and Amara at a pub where they're talking about their experiences on dating apps, and Maggie sort of shrugs off the quite horrific comments that Amara ex- um, receives on these on this dating app. And then an episode or so later, Amara Amara calls Maggie out for her complete obliviousness to the fact that their experiences of the world are not the same, and. I thought that was just handled brilliantly. Yeah. Mm. I think um, I also loved the way that it's clearly built through about the So the Maggie character is played, the actress who plays her is a model. Like that's her second, okay. I believe. I mean, she's played brilliantly. I feel like I shouldn't say she's my favorite character. She's not the most likable character by any stretch of the imagination, but she's played but she, brilliantly. She's played Yes, I completely agree. And I think what I really loved is the the way that each of them, actually, each of the characters, but that way that you're uniquely positioned in your 20s, that you're so unaware of what you present, how you present to the world versus what your inner monologue says, because you have insecurities. And I think the Maggie character in particular for me is just very much based on how she looks, you know, even saying something so flippantly to Amara, it's, it's, you know, she's six foot four, four, she's gorgeous. She wears whatever she wants and she looks fantastic. And by any stretch of the imagination, she's conventionally attractive. And yet through a numerous number of interactions, you can tell that she it's not that she's oblivious to her own looks, it's that she doesn't believe that she's very, she's particularly attractive. Well, I guess in part because when she was a teenager, someone called her a lanky minger in that, I mean, at least in that series. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know, I know. And so it's like, um, but then, you know, Nell, who, um, and I don't think this is a spoiler, but talks at points about, you know, you know is clearly like kind of balancing where she wants to go um, career-wise and how she's presenting at home and how she's presenting at school. And I think Birdie, who's playing adult, you know, playing growing up. Yes, there is there is a really good conversation about jobs and having a having a quote-unquote real job, getting up in the morning and the versus sort of the fact that Maggie, Dolly, sort of lands upon her dream job and gets to do it and not everyone gets to do that that's not everyone's reality and most people are in a more than nine to five grind and Mm. she is unaware of that and I think yes that is a particular lack of awareness that you probably have more (laughs) in your early 20s and I also love the fact that I love the idea of Maggie. I love the idea of the fringe and the sort of semi-boho style and whatever, live for the moment. I'm sorry if I want to live before I die, which is such a great line. Um, But I know in real life that I'm birdie. I just am. I am don't put your Coke on my salmon platter. That is me. (laughs) Well, that's what I meant with birdie is that it's that even though she doesn't have the job, she's got the older boyfriend. There's that great line when she says, I've just, I've learned so much about sport in the last month against my will. 
why do I know about the offside rule? And then the other one goes, why do so many men care about where a ball goes? And it's just like the way the lines work is so funny. Yeah, I thought that was that was just so brilliantly done where it's like Birdie doesn't have her real job, so she pretends to have... Well, it doesn't pretend, but it's important to her to feel grown up in other ways. Mm. So she dresses conservatively. Mm -hmm. She has all the, she's buying the things for her bottom drawer. She's going to dinner parties. I know. I love that. I've not really heard that phrase outside of the UK and I really love it. And then again, you know, um, Amara wanting to be a dancer or or clearly having Mm. a passion for dance. Gosh, I love that storyline, watching her run out of her job to yeah that was brilliant I think I've seen that through the creative profession is that for everyone whose parents are telling them not to do something there's also a lot of people who themselves are feeling guilty about pursuing their creative passion because they feel that they should be creating more stability or creating a situation for themselves that their parents then don't have to worry about and that seems to be very much her yes because she's not she's not going to quit her her day job is she she's going to keep that as her backup because she can't trust the idea of the success whereas maggie coming from a very middle class background is going to trust the fact that her dream is just going to pay for it even though she never has any money in her bank account (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's a cuz I think um I identify with Maggie a lot in the chaotic nature and the kind of image versus you know you're kind of trying to portray something in the hope that that fake it till you make it thing kind of balances out. Like mm. I really like that about her. I found that very relatable to her character. Um and and just wanting the party to keep going, but she is far more drugged and sex than I ever was in my (laughs) 20s like I would by about the third episode I was like oh yeah that that's not me did love the sex montage though in this in this series great sex montages really really good strong I loved the topless scene I just I thought it was so ridiculous and yet so the naked dancing yeah which apparently was real that did really happen by the way that's a real life anecdote that's why I just went it's so stupid and yet I definitely know a kind of person who would do that and and just and she does look kind of like a French you know when she says stop dressing like the ex-wife of a French prime minister I'm like she does she does look exactly like someone who's trying to dress she like is she belongs in Paris Carla Bruni meets <laughs> sort of one of the Gainsbourgs <laughs> yeah yeah but 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 not because it's just not effortless enough no it's just because it's not french (laughs) and that scene when she goes i just need to dress really effortlessly and cool because i'm not effortless and cool and the next scene is her looking like big bird and you just go but we've all been there we've all gone i think i'm gonna look fab in this and only afterwards gone just wasn't the case can we talk about uh street oh he's the worst He's actually the worst, but he's also, I can completely remember being enamored with boys like that. I was watching these episodes (laughs) with two friends and we all were triggered by Street. (laughs) Yeah. Everyone had some sort of relationship to Street. And by the end of it, I think, I feel like many people having watched this series will be deleting Street from their phone book. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm he's yeah 
I think I, I was stalking the cast on Instagram and... Not too dissimilar from his character, Johnny Rue's Instagram page. <laughs> oh! <laughs> um, but I did think he has got photos with the rest of the cast and I thought to play a character like that, you'd have to be in on the joke. You know, you couldn't... Surely. You couldn't portray that kind of just complete wanker. He's just a complete wanker. But also a real testament. There's a great moment. In fact, it's towards the end of their relationship. Can we even call it a relationship? Mm. Um, I guess we can. Um, Where, (laughs) again, watching it with friends, we were all like, oh, this is the bit before you go to therapy. Mm. And his complete inability to say what he actually feels about Maggie, which I think he did. You could see that in the actor's, the character's mm. face, the the portrayal of that. As it's falling down around him, he doesn't want to let her go, but he also has no capacity to care for her or express love or he just, he just can't, t- it's too vulnerable for him. So he just completely doubles down on the cool guy, Camden Town, Pete Doherty wannabe thing. There's a scene, if you're re-watching it, go back and watch the scene when she's walking away and he. there's a moment where he's like, but I, but, but, and he can't get there. He can't bring himself to it. And I thought, yes, these are the relationships that I was having <laughs> with men who were older than me, still in their 20s, but I was in my earlier 20s. They were older. They could not do it. And it wasn't because they didn't care Yes, they were shitheads, but they could not do it. Oh, I don't mean to trigger you father. It's okay. <sighs> but I thought... Did you think that was him playing her? I thought he just didn't want to lose. Like, he didn't want to be the one to pull to not get to call it off. Yeah, I think that was an element of it as well, because he was afraid. I don't think he really cared for her at all, but it's like... But he did. When she suddenly wasn't available, he did. That was his insecurity. No, I think that's a comfort thing. I don't think he did care about her. I think it was a, he's, because he kept being like, maybe this is just me, but I kept thinking, he he kept saying, oh, you're so bored. You must be so bored. And I think he was just kind of keeping himself in a perpetual state of like, like not real attachment. Yeah, Um, I agree with you. And... And it wasn't that he particularly cared about her. He just didn't want to need to make the effort to ask himself why he was lonely. Mm. I feel like there were, yeah. And having her around was kind of better than not because I didn't really feel, I didn't really feel anything from him. I just don't think people are 100% a shithead. And I think, although I think a lot of people are at a certain point in their life, probably, but I feel like there were fork in the road moments. So like, let's say they're in bed after having sex and there's a moment of like vulnerability and sincerity and there's a fork in the road he can either be vulnerable and caring towards her and instead he's like the easiest thing in this in this moment is for me to go Mm. you're a fucking dumb bitch Mm. (laughs) excuse my language and yeah which is i think pretty much what he says in 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 some moments or you're really boring or god you're stupid or something and he says it in enough of a teasing way for her to go Mm. because he knows that she's that insecure Mm. to go oh yeah (laughs) but 
And then he has a sense of power and mm. control. So that boosts him up and off we go on to the next thing. Otherwise, I have to believe that he actually hates her on some level and there's like he's deeply misogynistic and in which case he's actually a really horrible, horrible guy. And I don't think that's the case. I think he's just unable to connect with tenderness and vulnerability. No, I, do, I thought he was awful. I'm sorry. Really? Yeah. I don't, I don't like think... Like just a deep... But, but yeah. No, I think he thought... Um, because I think for me it comes back to the fact that... Um, I think he was just a lost 20-something-year-old dude. He's playing an image. You know, he's playing... That's, but, but that's I'm saying of, the motivation for playing that is because he's lost and insecure, not because he's just a shithead. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. I just don't think that... I think he was lost and insecure and also didn't... Cared for Maggie, but didn't feel anything close to love for Maggie. I agree with you. I think he cared for her in the way that... Uh, but in a very selfish, in a completely self-serving way. I don't think there was any genuine affection for her as a person. I think it was very much about how she made him feel. And I think that that's actually very common in early 20s relationships because you're figuring out who you are and you don't have a lot of capacity to figure out, to even contemplate thinking about someone else. And I don't think that makes you a bad person like fundamentally a bad person I think it just makes you very selfish which you are in your early 20s yeah I just think it's like a it's a it's a stage of growth for that kind of boy and some of them grow out of it and some of them don't but I think like that that's kind of my gut feeling it's like he might grow into like a banker 35 year old who has a, a wife that he adores oh that guy is married with kids now I have no yeah, doubt because I think it's all about him working out who he is in relation to himself and Maggie was there to make the character of Street in his mind work but I don't think there was any genuine affection for like she says at one point you know you don't know anything about like you don't know anything Mm. about me yeah yeah and I think he would probably have known stuff about his friends and he probably had female friends that he'd know stuff about that he'd also slept with yeah, or maybe maybe not, but I, I imagine he probably would have had quite a close group. I mean, I'm totally going off with the fairies here, but um, I imagine that kind of person would have like a close group of friends that he would never show off, like never show anything more than the street character would, but he would genuinely know things about them. Um, and he just never knew anything about Maggie. Street has got way too much of our time, more than he deserves. I want to talk about the fact that this is set in 2012. I want to talk about the fact that that was such a hopeful year. It was the year that my friends all graduated. I graduated that year, actually. I was getting confused because I graduated a year after a lot of my friends, for whatever reason, for studying abroad years, etc. Sorry. It was a very hopeful year. It was the year I graduated uni. It was the year of the 2012 Olympics, as is referenced in the series. This is pre-Brexit. This is pre-Trump. This is post-financial crisis. The living is good. Times are good. People are happy and hopeful. And it's really hard now, post-Brexit, post-Trump, post-Covid, into recession, cost of living crisis, to remember that that was a really exciting time um, to be young and in your 20s and entering the job market and finding your way. And that's another reason why I love this series, because I just long for that hope. (laughs) 
it did it did also put london in the most glorious light and as someone who's only lived there when it was hideously expensive um (laughs) and i'm sure and it was pretty expensive in the show as well but I did kind of think, oh, it must have been a really fun place to live if there were four of you in a run-down flat in a back street of Camden um, running around. Yeah, it just... And Primrose Hill looked fantastic. Yes! I loved the moment where um, the the person that she works for, her boss at Made in Chelsea slash Airs and Graces. Oh, and I was obsessed with Made in Chelsea. So all of that, I'm like, Kyle is a stand-in for Spencer. And then I'm like, she's Louise because the New York thing when that got... Anyway, I knew way too much of like... Who, who was being portrayed. Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. But the her boss there, when her boss is like, comes to the house party and she's like, where's all this? Where's all this? Camden's not what it used to be, blah, blah, blah. And Maggie just turns to her and she says, maybe it's because people like you and your ex-husband bought all of the houses and rented it to people like me. <laughs> I thought that was um, great. Yeah. Oh, so good. Maybe we should do a little quick little recap once you've okay. finished it. What do we think about the fact that there's going to be a second season? I, well, you haven't finished the series yet, have you? I know. Is it set up for a second season? I think if you've read the book, you'll know exactly what they're going to do with the second season. Because in my mind, I'm thinking about the whole book. So now, I, now I'm cottoning on to what you're saying. So I think I know where they're going to stop. Yeah. So I think in the sense that if, if you've read the book, I think the theme of, yeah, I think it will become very clear what the theme of the second series is going to be. And I, for one, think it's great. I think it could go for many series, actually. I'm really, I think it's another kind of maybe a girl's, well, it feels very reminiscent. Yeah, that's what it's been likened to, hasn't it, a lot? Yeah. Yeah, and I think it will just go away from her memoir into just... A, a, a tv show about four female friends yeah 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 because actually now that i'm thinking about it the only there's only one storyline that i'm really latching on to to underpin the second season and so that would leave quite a few other characters at a loose end mm. and also to speak that dolly herself hasn't in the memoir was quite open about the fact that she hadn't had a long-term relationship and I imagine that somewhere that they'd want to go with Maggie. Like, you know, they will want to pull things in different directions, I think. That was a real bombshell for me in reading the Sydney Morning Herald interview with Dolly Alderton, though. She's dating someone at the moment. <gasps> Is she? Mm-hmm. He's younger than her. That's quite a bit younger than her. That's lovely, though. Well, I guess that's it. This is a really long episode. It is. Even if I cut it down, it's going to be It's going to be a long one. <sighs> but, um... Come and visit us on Instagram. I am going to hold on my hand and say by the time you are hearing this, I will have updated the Instagram. But I am the reason that we're slow on Instagram at the moment. It is my fault. Mia culpa. I am sorry. I am apologizing to our favorite listeners, the ones who listened all the way to the end. <laughs> but yes, please come and visit us. We're at threewheelingpod on Instagram. Instagram.com on Instagram. God. And you can also email us. We are threewheelingpod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, especially if you have strong thoughts about everything I know about love and you've made it this far with us. Please email. You are welcome here. 
It, yeah, if you have made it this far, well, well done. And please share well done this episode, this very long episode. Please share it with your friends, share the pod. We are small, but we are mighty and we welcome new audience members all the time. Yes, share it with someone who loved who loved uh, everything I know about love. And we can form the Dolly Alderton Appreciation oh. Fan Club. And Laurel and I are just going to... Swap. We can just exchange the president. I feel like badge I got that. every week yeah, yeah. Okay. because mm-hmm. we can't decide who loves her more. You actually made the mac I and did. cheese though. Really I did, fun, and so I, I do like take better. pictures of her to the hairdresser literally every time I go, which is maybe weird, but that's what I'm aiming for, guys. That's that's what reference pictures are for. Yeah. All right. Well, until next time, Laurel. Bye. Bye. My mum's told me she wants some laughs. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Better deliver. Better do it. All right, let's go. Hit me.